morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods Podcast, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Tiffany Powell Wiley, MD, MPH, and obesity research expert. Good morning, Dr. Wiley, and thank you for coming to Cocoa Pods Podcast. Hi, good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We're talking about obesity today. Obesity is widely acknowledged as a condition that could be prevented, but is seriously stressing the healthcare system. So first, let's go way back to its origins worldwide. The history of obesity includes a variety of tribal customs, such as fattening up young girls and women to make them more desirable. In southeastern Nigeria town of Calabar, settled in the early 17th century by the ethnic branch of the Ibibio people, there existed the Nkugo, that's N-K-U-G-H-O, the ancient practice of the fattening room. The fattening room is a place young women are prepared for womanhood. In ancient times, Fat was viewed as a sign of prosperity, fertility, and beauty. Young girls are usually taken to the fattening room during puberty. Acceptance into the fattening room was viewed as a privilege as it was a demonstration of virtue, sexual purity, and proved virginity. The ability of the young girl to gain weight in the fattening room was a sign that she possessed all the above-mentioned qualities. The father of the girl invests in the process of paying what is called the Eme, E-M-E, coral beads, to appease Unku, N-K-U, the river goddess of the house, before she is accepted into the fattening room. Once in the fattening room, the girls are kept away from their family members and friends. The only visitors allowed are the elderly women in the community who come to pass on lessons of marital etiquette and acceptable social behaviors and customs. The girls are also hand-fed heavy meals rich in carbohydrates and fat. Sometimes the girls do not find this process pleasant as they have to consume the food regardless of their appetite. They are also given all-round beauty treatment from head to feet using what is called undom, N-D-O-M, native chalk, and other massage oils made from natural plants. They perform only the simplest activities. At the end of the Nkogu, the girl is ceremoniously revealed to the community to show how big and beautiful she is now, a symbol of beauty and fertility. And well-wishers and potential suitors are also invited to watch her dance. So Dr. Wiley, how has this history transcended time? This seeming adulation of the Venus of Willendorf, that idol that had tiny or no feet, possibly meant to represent lack of mobility in association with the obesity of the statuette. When did the term obesity appear in the English language? Based on the history, I think we know that the term obesity has not been utilized very long in 
history. I think it started within the 19th century that it really started being used and particularly being used in relation to health and thinking about how it could relate to health outcomes in particular. And, and so we need to think about, especially the history you're providing on how in specific cultures, there's been a way of making women obese in particular as a sign of beauty, as a sign of fertility, as a sign of health and preparing them for marriage and having children. Some of that, those perceptions still persist today where there are within certain cultures, there's a perception that bigger is better, that curvy and, and big represents wellness, it represents beauty, it, but it also represents how women should look in the sign of even wealth and things like that. And so there is definitely a tension in, in thinking about obesity and how it affects health and obesity and body image and how it's related to body image. And so we as physicians really need to kind of sit back and, you know, understand that a lot of patients may want to look a certain way. We can work with patients in that way, but we can also emphasize how important it is to have a healthy lifestyle. Even if you're curvy, you can still get the exercise you need. You can still eat in a healthy way. And even if your weight is not always at a BMI of 25 or less, you still can do the things that are needed to stay healthy. Wow. Well, thank you so much. You know, and by way of introduction, Dr. Tiffany Power Wiley is an obesity research expert. Dr. Power Wiley graduated summa cum laude from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. During medical school, she spent a year at the National Institute of Health as a research fellow in the clinical research training program. Dr. Power Wiley graduated from Duke University School of Medicine and completed her master's degree in public health with a concentration in epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Prior to joining the National Institute of Health, Dr. Powell Wiley completed internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and cardiology fellowship at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, UTSW, in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Powell Wiley served two years as a clinical research fellow in the Reynolds Cardiovascular Research Center at UTSW. Dr. Powell Wiley also served for one year as the cardiology division's first chief fellow from 2011 to 2017. Dr. Powell Wiley was an assistant clinical investigator at the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. From 2011 to 2014, she held a joint appointment in the Office of the Associate Director of the Applied Research Program of the National Cancer Institute. Since 2017, Dr. Power Wiley has been an Earl Stadman Tenure Track Investigator 
with a joint appointment in the cardiovascular branch of the Division of Intramural Research at the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute and the Intramural Research Program of the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. We will talk about Dr. Powell Wiley's research interests as the, this podcast unfolds. So as we go back to the topic of obesity, obesity is a disease that has become a worldwide epidemic. Based on the latest estimates in European Union countries, 30 to 70% of adults are overweight and 10 to 30% of adults are obese. That is by the World Health Organization 2017. The World Health Organization data for 2016 lists 1.9 billion adults, that is 39% aged 18 years and older as overweight with a body mass index. And that body mass index is a person's weight in kilograms divided by square of their height in meters. A body mass index between 25 and 29.9 kilograms per meter squared and 650 million people, that is 13% as obese with a BMI of more than 30 kilograms per meter squared. More than 340 million children worldwide aged 5 to 19 years are overweight or obese. In the United States, about 100 million adults, that is 37%, and 12.7 million children, that is 17%, are obese. Every United States state has a greater than 20% prevalence rate of obesity, with 22 states exceeding 30%. So Dr. Powell Wiley, what exactly caused the World Health Organization to declare obesity a global epidemic and a worldwide public health crisis? So what really pushed, I think, and not being at the World Health Organization, I don't know all the work that went into describing obesity as a global epidemic, but we know that rates of obesity across the, around the world have not gone down over the past several decades and have steadily increased. And so not just in specific countries, but really around the world, we're seeing the impact of obesity on health. And just to give an example, we know for cardiovascular health in the United States that the rates of mortality from cardiovascular disease were steadily going down up until 2011. And there's data to show that the um, mortality actually plateaued starting in 2011 and more recently maybe going up. But a lot of that has to do with the rates of obesity in the U.S. and subsequently the rates of diabetes that relate to the levels of obesity. And so the rates of obesity in the U.S. are really having an impact on our risk for heart disease and, and our the rates of mortality and death related to heart disease. And so that's pushed many organizations to really agree that obesity is a very complex disease that needs to be widely addressed. 
Thank you. So now looking at some of your research interests, it's safe to say that during the decades in which obesity has become an epidemic in the United States, the human gene pool has not been concomitantly altered. So although heredity does play a role in susceptibility to obesity and obesity-related disorders, the social, behavioral, and environmental contributors cannot be overlooked if an effective prevention and treatment strategy is to be designed. So what can you share from your research focus on the social determinants of obesity and obesity-related cardiovascular risk factors that contribute to race and ethnic disparities in cardiovascular disease. So what in our, in our lives can put us at risk for obesity? Just put in plain, simple English. So there are many different things in our lives that can put us at risk for obesity. So part of it has to do with what happens when we're in our mother's womb and what our mothers are exposed to. And if our mothers don't have the appropriate nutrition and food that they need, if they're living in a community that has a food desert where they're not able to really get access to healthy foods, then that puts them at risk for obesity during pregnancy. And ultimately that puts their child, the child at risk for obesity in their lifetime. Then when you think about once a child is born, what are the different factors within their community, within their environment that puts them at risk? Their environment may not have areas for exercise. They may not have safe areas for exercise. Right now we're dealing with the epidemic of gun violence. And if your community is really being affected by gun violence and you don't feel safe going outside, you are not gonna get the activity you need and that's gonna put you at higher risk for obesity. You also have to think about what are all of the things that can affect your stress level if you're financially not very secure because of limited access to good jobs, um, limited access to great a good education, with limited resources and, and limited financial stability. All of those are stressors, and that stress really leads to release of hormones in your body that also put you at risk for obesity. So these are things that we call, as you mentioned, the social determinants of health. They're the factors that are in the environment around you, but also the experiences you have based on where you live, where you work, where you play, where you pray. Those experiences all can, or what we call social determinants, and those are factors that put particularly populations that are most affected by racial and ethnic segregation and discriminatory housing practices, those are the things that put them at highest risk for, for obesity. So obesity in women is associated with so many women-specific changes. Nearly 300 million women are now thought to be clinically obese. Being too fat is called adiposity. This causes significant health problems, not only for the individual, but also for families and communities 
who have to bear the cost of managing the associated medical conditions, you know, often utilizing a major portion of the total health budget. You know, the WHO looked at this in 2014. So being too fat, adiposity has particular consequences for women and for reproductive health. That is women and the ability to get pregnant. In women, one of the profound effects is a reduction in their fertility. Why do overweight women have some of these tendencies? So you're right in that excess adiposity, having too much adiposity in the body puts women at risk for infertility. It's one of many factors that can affect fertility. But one of the things that we understand about excess body fat or excess adiposity is the chemical effects that it can actually have on the body. So for many years, it was thought that body fat was something that didn't really have much in terms of hormones released or uh, chemicals that were within that body fat tissue. But now we better, we understand that there are actual inflammatory markers, that there are chemicals that do come from body fat, particularly body fat that's in around the waist area, which we call visceral adiposity. We understand that that type of body fat actually releases inflammatory markers that promotes the buildup of fatty plaques within the blood vessels. It promotes the risk for diabetes, all of that inflammation that is not good for the body. And it can also have effects on a woman's fertility as well. It can disrupt her menstrual cycles, can disrupt her ability to ovulate every month. And so those are ways in which excess body fat can affect fertility. But again, it's really that inflammation that not only affects fertility, but other organs in the body. Thank you. You know, so now when a pregnancy is finally achieved, the mom being pregnant, maternal obesity during pregnancy is also fraught with risks to both the mother and baby. For the mom specifically, because of the obesity, she could have not so good pregnancy outcomes, such as increased risk of spontaneous miscarriages. They could have sugar, pregnancy diabetes, high blood pressure of pregnancy, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. And Gluconec at all in 2008 actually did look at this scientifically, that pregnancy is more likely to be prolonged uh, labor is more likely to be difficult. The women are more likely to require operative delivery, like using a vacuum or a C-section. And this brings increased risk of infection. The women could form a clot in their legs that could go to their lungs, thromboembolism, and they could just be debilitated and weak, you know, just from the obesity and pregnancy. These researchers, Aviram, and his colleagues looked at this in 2011. For the baby, the specific risks, risks to the baby because their moms are obese is that the baby could not have such good outcomes. That is, the baby might need to be born early. That's what we call 
iatrogenic prematurity. The OBGYN might make a decision to deliver early because of issues going on with the mom. The baby might be too big. We call this macrosomia. And there also can be associated trauma during delivery. We call this birth trauma, especially because big babies at times have very broad shoulders and these shoulders can get stuck during delivery. This is called shoulder dystocia. Now, for the baby being born as a big baby, for the baby himself or herself, puts the baby at risk for obesity and metabolic disorders in childhood and later in life. So Dr. Powell Wiley, are there other problems that could happen specifically to a woman in and around the time of a pregnancy because of obesity that you can think of? Yeah, as a cardiologist, we are very concerned about the rates of um, maternal mortality related to adverse cardiovascular outcomes in pregnancy. And, and we know that obesity is just one risk factor that puts women at risk for things like, as you mentioned, gestational diabetes, hypertension in pregnancy, but also preeclampsia, which is when, again, blood pressure goes up quite high during pregnancy, but it leads to the need for uh, women to have their babies delivered, even if they're not at term, and it can put women at risk for hematologic and neurologic issues after developing preeclampsia. And so there is concern, especially that as obesity rates go up around the world, this is one factor that may be contributing to rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes for women. Thank you. Thank you. So Dr. Power Wiley, you have three interrelated research goals. Can you describe these obesity-related research goals of your lab in as much, you know, layman's terms that you can for the rest of us? Sure. So as I mentioned, and we talked a little bit about, I'm a cardiologist, so, so I focus mainly on heart disease and how we can think of ways of preventing heart disease, but really how obesity plays a role in the development of heart disease. And so with that, I'm really focused on looking at obesity and cardiovascular disease and heart disease in many different ways. And so one way is really looking on a broad scale, thinking more from a population level, what are some of the social factors, the social determinants that I mentioned, the things in your environment, the things that are leading to stress, the things that are affected by social policy, what are those factors that promote the development of obesity, but also lead to the development of heart disease. And so we take data from large populations from around the country or in areas in specific areas in the country. And we look at if we know somebody has is exposed to factors within their environment, how does that lead to the development of obesity over time? Or how does that lead to the development of obesity-related heart disease risk factors like high blood pressure or diabetes. So that's one area where we're really learning what are some of these social factors that lead to the development of obesity. The other area that we focus on is taking what we learn in these large studies and taking it into communities and understanding that there are communities that are exposed to 
adverse or poor environmental conditions all the time. They've been historically underinvested in. They've been affected by, again, things like redlining, where you know, there was limited access to housing, their discriminatory housing policies, and they've been affected by segregation in communities. We've been working in those communities to really understand how do we bring interventions and, and what we're learning from populations, how do we bring those into communities? And the big thing that we try to do is work with community members to see what works for them, what types of interventions work for them to address some of the social factors that are leading to their heart disease risk or leading to obesity, but also how do we help them improve their cardiovascular health? How do we help them get more active in terms of physical activity? How do we help them eat a healthier diet? And how do we design interventions based on their feedback? We do a lot working with community members. We talk to them through community advisory board meetings or through the studies that we do. We get a lot of what we call qualitative data, where we're doing focus groups and interviews to really get a sense of what are the needs of the community as we build these interventions. And so, again, we're taking what we're learning in these population studies to the community and developing interventions for the community. And then finally, the other big area is taking, as we learn about these and implement these interventions, trying to take information from the interventions and really understand some of the more detailed mechanisms by which the environment that you're exposed to actually lead to the development of obesity and heart disease. So we work with the interventions to really do very detailed measures of the population to understand what are even some of the more biologic factors that are leading to heart disease and what are some of the ways that the stresses of all the things around you really get under your skin to lead to obesity and lead to heart disease risk. So that involves looking at blood markers within the populations that we work with in the community and seeing can we connect some of those blood markers to risk factors for heart disease and also connect them to the exposures that they have in their environment. And so the big thing that is very important in the work that we do is that we take what we're learning with each of our projects and take it back to the community so that they know what is happening so that we can get their input on what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and learn how to think about the next intervention or the next study based on their feedback.